Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Tonight on The Breakdown, she's a champion for women of color and politics. Amy Allison, president of Democracy in Color, is with us. She has a lot to say about how progressive candidates can capture the White House. And gain more power in politics generally, and they did last year, so we'll talk about all that. It's a topic of much debate as the 2020 campaign for president, of course, heats up. And guess what? She accused me of being buttoned down, but we'll talk about that later. Okay, it's not about you, Scott. (laughs) You know that the midterm is one year away? The California midterm? Yes. Isn't that frightening? Yeah. Ballots will have gone out like oh four weeks, oh nine months from okay. now. It's happening, people. Uh, ten, 11 months, I'm sorry. But first, let's talk about um, a sort of broader racial issue, and that is police shootings and the ongoing strife really happening in Sacramento this week. We saw over the past week uh, two decisions not to charge the two police officers who shot and killed Stefan Clark about a year ago in his grandmother's backyard. He was holding a cell phone. Uh, police officers said they thought it was a gun. He had been, um, uh, they had been investigating some broken car windows and vandalism when they came across him. And basically, both the Sacramento District Attorney and the Attorney General Javier Becerra said after almost a year of investigating that they did not think that the shootings met the threshold for criminal charges. Um, this decision sparked protest, a lot of consternation. And, you know, I think. We've talked about this since the beginning. We had John Burris on last year right after it happened. But I think what this really speaks to for me, for you know, through a political lens, um, there's the debate over whether we should change those laws, of course. But just what I feel like in the last few weeks, we've really seen a different side of Javier Becerra politically, um, our attorney general. Yeah, well, I think, you know, what, what we're seeing and we, I guess we if we'd thought about it, we would have known. But it's a lot easier to sue a very unpopular president 47 times than it is to, uh, you know, get crosswise with law enforcement unions, uh, district attorneys. Now, I'm not saying that's why he came down the way he did this week. I mean, what he said, and it was it was an interesting phrase. He said the charges could not be sustained. Yeah, and 
I think that that is really the the issue that's being debated right now in the state legislature. You know, we have very sort of we give a lot of latitude to police officers. We say that if it seemed reasonable for them to fear for their lives or for them to think somebody else is in harm's way, that they can use deadly force legally. That's right. Uh, there's a proposal on the table to change that to whether it is um, necessary. And that is something law enforcement's really fighting. But to me, Scott, I think what's interesting is not just this, but the bigger debate, too, over police records that Becerra has found himself in the middle of. There's a new state law that really opened up disciplinary records of cops. And he's really sided with police officers so far saying they don't they don't want this law to be retroactive. Yeah. And he has said, OK, let's let the courts decide. Yeah. Well, the police unions, of course, opposed this bill, SB 1421, I think it was. Uh, it passed, and it uh, seemed pretty clear at the time that it was retroactive, that it applied to police records that had been maintained None up to the point. None of them said they didn't think it was when it was being debated in the yeah. state legislature. And so when it took effect, uh, as you said, the police unions, many of them sued, and uh, we've had at least three, I think, judges throughout. I think five, perhaps. It's, four yeah, five, it's yeah. Uh, Ventura, and- Contra Costa, San Diego at least, uh, sided with of the media and others who said, no, the, the, these records, this was a retroactive Right, and law. just this week we saw the state Supreme Court decline to take up a lower court's uh, decision on that, which did uphold the retroactivity. Um, and so KQED, among other organizations, has sued Becerra. To me, though, you know, beyond the sort of legalese debate, I think it's interesting because you really do see when you're in this position as what's called, you know, sort of colloquially California's top cop, um, you know, it is hard to take an opposite position to law enforcement. And we saw this happen with Kamala Harris, of course. And, you know, Becerra has really sort of worked on his progressive credentials until this point. And this is the first time we're seeing some cracks appearing in that. Yeah, alliance. I think there's a sense that, uh, you know, perhaps it was a lack of courage, uh, overly cautious. And, you know, as you suggested, these are some of the same allegations that were leveled at Kamala Harris when she was attorney general in some of the same issues uh, around, for example, um, a bill I think that would have required in independent investigations by the attorney general when there were you know, lethal police shootings of unarmed uh, people. <laughs> Which the police might welcome these days, after, <laughs> you know, considering how much further the conversation has been pushed in recent years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the, the Black Caucus and uh, the legislature was not happy with her. So, you know, you do see there is this... Um, this conflict, sort of internal conflict, mm-hmm. especially if you're a Democrat. I think if you're a Republican, it's kind of a no-brainer um, because they tend to be, uh, you know, more tough on crime, more aligned with uh, law enforcement organizations. But, uh, yeah, I think this is uh, – it does see, as you say, it shows a different side of Javier Becerra. And, you know, I, I think – he just got reelected to a four-year term, so he's not going to be facing the voters anytime soon. However, you know, Dianne Feinstein could step down in a year or two, and I think he's a plausible replacement if Kamala Harris gets elected president, you know, also. And, you know, he's seeing it's, this is happening at a time when his national profile is on the rise. He gave the official Spanish-language response to President Trump's State of the Union speech. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know if all that is getting factored into these two decisions that we're talking about here. But, you know, it's it's got to be at least somewhere uh, in, if not top of mind, you know, on his mind or in the back of his mind. Yeah, I do think it'll be interesting to watch. You know, for a lot of progressive groups, he really has been this darling, right? He has sued the Trump administration so many times, particularly over immigration and immigrant rights. Um, he's really been out front on bail and criminal justice reform Environmental around issues, that. So and, women's reproductive yeah, rights. Yeah, and so this is really an area where I do think that he is being, I think it's I th- subjective, you know, objectively fair to say that he is being 
very cautious. Like, I think with the Stefan Clark decision, it's slightly different. I think you can argue that 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 he felt constrained by the law and he is saying that the law needs to be looked at. I think with the police records, it's a little different. A little harder to and, defend, yeah, I would say. Yeah, and that's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we will be joined by Amy Allison, president of Democracy in Color. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And joining us now, a woman whose career is devoted to supporting and promoting women of color running for office. She's president of Democracy in Color. She's also founder of She the People. Amy Allison, welcome to Political Breakdown. I'm so happy I cannot tell you how happy I really? am to be with you, Tell too. us how happy you are. <laughs> All the way across try. the bridge yeah. from Oakland. <laughs> so uh, it's just coincidental, but uh, today the House of Representatives uh, uh, passed a resolution overwhelmingly condemning hate. Uh, this whole issue had bubbled up because of uh, Representative uh, Ilhan Omar and some of the uh, statements she had made about uh, Israel, the, the lobby for Israel. Uh, and uh, it, this resolution changed a lot. Initially, it was really perceived as being aimed at her rebuke, and, yeah. and, and anti-Semitism generally. The one that passed today was much broader, it included anti-Islamophobia uh, and other you know kinds of hate, uh, white supremacy. But tell us, you know, as someone who is so involved in helping uh, women of color and diverse women of color get elected, you know, what, what's your take on this whole thing? Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, she broke barriers. She got into Congress and uh, by mobilizing her uh, district in Minnesota. She did not get help from the Democratic Party. Her presence in Congress was r- remarkable, right? So Rolling Stone puts her on the cover of you know the magazine just last week, um, um, along with a, a couple other women of color who have, you know, show the new face of the Democratic Party along with Pelosi, right? Uh, yeah, Nancy we, Pelosi. Exactly. And we should say that she is one She's of Muslim, two yeah. Muslim women. That's to get right, elected. along yep. with Rashida Tlaib out of Michigan. So she just physically looks different from every other Congress member as a refugee from Somalia, as a black a woman, as a Muslim. She wears a hijab. She yeah. wears a hijab. And she was elected to legislate. And there are so many ways that women of color who have made their way uh, through new pathways uh, to governance. That's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Deb Holland. There's a Ayanna Presley out of Massachusetts. There's a, there's a whole bunch of mm-hmm. women. I would say a whole bunch, 12 <laughs> women <laughs> women of color were still very underrepresented um, 
who are coming into office and doing something that is deeply threatening to both parties. And that is, you know, there's no sacred cows. And do you think think they're being treated differently because they're women of color? I, I think they're being treated differently, not only because, hey, it's great to have you on the cover of Rolling Stone. We love it because uh, you give more energy and bring more people to be excited about the new face of Congress. And it's almost like a marketing campaign or diversity and inclusion. But when uh, a leader, an elected leader like Ilhan Omar starts to actually do her job, which as a legislator, uh, and she does it in a way that says, look, there's no sacred cows, or no a better way to say there's no third rail in politics. There, there are practices, there's assumptions, um, and, and uh, there's um, influences on our politics mm-hmm. uh, that these women of color are in to actually challenge. So Ilhan Omar talks about something that, uh, uh, you know, elected officials on both sides of the aisle usually consider a third rail, and that is that uh, the presence of and the uh, influence of APAC as a lobbying firm for uh, the Israeli government and to call into question their practices, uh, their treatment of the Palestinian people. I think that's a legitimate area of debate. That's what she's supposed to do. But for bringing up something that was considered so sacred, she was called an anti-Semite. And I can, I can say that that's, that's a way of trying to uh, silence her. But in, by silencing her, what they're really saying is we don't want to challenge the status quo. I mean, what's your take on how, you know, Pelosi has handled this? Because I do think that there, this is a complicated sort of debate when you get into some of the rhetoric that she used. I, she apologized for some of it. Um, you know, I think that some of the sort of the language was reminiscent of tropes that have been used in the anti-Semitic context before. Um, but it's also interesting, you know, that you see the things our president has said, the things that other representatives had said over the years. Um, the thing the GOP in West Virginia did by putting her on a, a poster and blaming Representative Ilhan Omar for 9-11. She's a young woman. She was like, she's a mom of yeah. three. I, you know, just it's so ridiculous. Yet there was no uh, focus in the Democratic Party leadership, House leadership, to condemn that or to condemn Trump. Yeah. They're going to prioritize their energy attacking the first one of two uh, Muslim women in Congress. It's you, questionable. It's yeah. Like, I mean, you just mentioned that there's like, you know, only 12 women. But it, it's it, what happened last year was still a big moment for yeah. people like you, for the nation, really. Um, what, did you do you see it as a turning point? Um, understanding that I'm sure you still think there's a long way to go. Yeah, it is, is a turning point. There's some things in you talk about the, the assumption in politics I think we're we're really in the midst of experiencing a, a great um, political and cultural shift in our country, and it's really led by and centered on women of color. You're talking about a group of people, millions of us, who are the least likely to be elected in office. We're still only 4% of all elected officials everywhere, in, in California. Mm-hmm. Um, we're the most progressive voting bloc for the Democratic Party. We just pulled some numbers from Catalyst, which is this... Uh, database that shows uh, voting, you know, the voting records of all the registered voters. And women of color as an aggregate are 88 percent likely to vote Democrat versus white women who are 48 percent. So it's a they're a good bet for the Democratic Party. They show up. uh, And yet um, when when we are in the halls of power, first of all, we're not supported in primaries and um, not uh, not really valued for 
the perspective on policy and uh, really a change in the way that we think about politics. We want to come back and talk, I think, about 2020 and some other things. But tell us a little bit about democracy and color and she the people. Like, what what do you do? What's your what are your goals? And how did you get involved in it? Well, I, I have to say, I've been in politics for a long time in one role or another. You ran for the city council in yeah, Oakland I did. in 2005, like a, oh, I think. Yeah, two, 2005 and 2006. Uh-huh. I imagine then, you know, and I had a corporate job at that time uh, with ADP, which is a payroll company. So if you, anyone who knows the person is like, Why were, what were you doing there? It's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> and I well, used to sit in the parking lot in Pleasanton, and I list, used to listen to KQED. And uh, I'd listen to the news. I would think, boy, uh, I need to do something. At that time, uh, there was wars raging in the Middle East and uh, problems at home. And I, you know, I used to walk into the cube farm, into my office, <laughs> like I got to do something, and uh, decided decided to to run. And I think that was a big turning point for me to um, to take what I, you know, I'd been an anti-war activist and. Well, you had been in the army. Right? Yeah, you enlisted when you were like seventeen. <laughs> seventeen. So how did? How, I mean, that's a, such a difference from what you're doing now. No, I, mean, I, know, I know. So how did? Like how did? What yeah, was the path but, to yeah, the army? Wait, okay, here's the through line. <laughs> I'm, fi- I'm fifty this year, and I'm gonna just get used to saying it because you know it's true, and it's like, oh my gosh. Okay, the through line between the seventeen-year-old me and the fifty-year-old me is I always been called to serve. Uh, the thing is. Um, the recruiter on my campus in Antioch High School convinced me that the best way for me to serve and to get a college education was to enlist. And I signed an eight-year contract. Wow. Uh, to Did be your parents, uh, they were okay be, with that? Okay. I don't, you know, they were like, you got this. You're, you're fine. You're, you know, you're trying to take care of business. Was it a military family? I mean, was there... Not, not really. It was, it was the option that I thought I had. Now... When I think back to, you know, when I look around at 17, 18, 19-year-olds, they're so young. Mm-hmm. And um, I know for sure, I can speak for myself, I didn't know myself. So I found myself, you know, at uh, in South Carolina in Fort Jackson for boot camp. I, I thought it was, you know, I was an aspiring doctor at the time. Um, but I thought, hey, being a, being a combat medic, uh, th- this is right for me. And then they, you know... Put me on BDUs and issued a rifle, and I was like, oh, wait a minute. And then over the course of the year, well, years in the military as a reservist, I spent a lot of time in the Palo Alto VA. I took care of of vets. I was heartbroken at um, people who were asked to sacrifice everything and then left, bereft, homeless. And um, and I I just want to say that, that, oh, it was over time that I came to realize that the best way for me to serve humanity was in in the, you know, in the name of peace and justice. So that's where, where I was motivated to apply and ultimately so, win an honorable discharge as a conscientious so, objector. Yeah. So how did you get from enlisting at the age of seventeen to conscientious objector? I mean, I started getting involved at. I, I went to Stanford and uh, started immediately getting involved in the Black Student Union. Um, coming from a mostly white town, well, you know, newsflash, now. Antioch. Antioch was mostly white when I was growing up. Now, not so yeah. anymore. Not it's not that, but it was a very different time in the '80s. And uh, but you know, I, I joined the Black Student Union. I got involved in student politics. We started organizing. Uh, what do we call that? The the People's Party. It was mm-hmm. progressive, justice-oriented, multiracial organizing. It was like I was practicing for what I'm doing now. And uh, I was also taking a lot of classes. I decided to leave behind um, the idea of becoming pre-med and 
instead became a history major, focusing on Reconstruction. And the reason Hmm. I was so really obsessed with that period in our history was it was the country's attempt to right the wrongs of slavery and to um, and to welcome millions of people who had had everything taken from them, uh, formerly enslaved people, into the democracy. And it was a, a very short period. Um, and my family has a story about Reconstruction. My my, my dad, um, my dad's grandfather was born in an area called uh, Arkansas. And the story goes in my family that um, after slavery, he uh, tried his hand at uh, being a farmer. And he lived on a farm and was selling uh, what he was growing on his land and got into conflict with the white farmers in the area. And they came. This was before the KKK and all that. They just came and uh, threatened to, to kill him uh, if he if he stayed there. And they put all his belongings and family and kids uh, on a wagon um, headed for Canada. They were refugees. Hmm. What year was that? Well, roughly, the family story is it's sometime after slavery, yeah. so yeah. we can think about it in the late 1960s. Eight, you know, or yeah. yeah. I mean, so, did you grow up with your dad's African American and your mm-hmm. mom is white, right? Yeah, that's right. So, how much? It sounds like this is something that was talked about in your household yeah. growing up. You, you were, yeah. I mean, obviously very aware, obviously of who you are, but but yeah. the but it sounds like that sort of political discussion and 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 the issue of race and politics was something that you grew up sort of aware of. Yeah, my, I mean, even my my mom grew up in Eastern Oregon in a little town called um, Sweet Home. And uh, when she was about 17, 18, she saw uh, the very brave uh, civil rights activists, the young people, braving fire hoses and all kinds of abuse and violence to try to desegregate the South. And she was one of the many, many uh, uh, white college, you know, college-age students who got on buses and headed south. And she ended up in Southampton, Virginia, and she was there when the Voting Rights Act was oh, passed. Wow. She... She was really believed her whole life that she was part of expanding democracy. I mm. mean, if that was a theme that I got from growing up, it was that. Wow. You know? Just a reminder, if you're just listening uh, in, tuning in for the first time, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer with Marisa Lagos, and our guest today is Amy Allison. She's president of Democracy in Color, founder of She the People as well. So in light of all that, Amy, like how, how was race discussed in your household, especially living in a white community, you know, a biracial family in a white community, Antioch at the time. I mean, did, were, were, was it a thing in your family? I mean, you know, how did, how did you experience it in, you know, in, in, in high school and so on? You know, I've never written about my family. And I'll talk, I'll get a, give a speech to a thousand people about the importance of, of um, what I call bridge people who have a heart for people that are different from them. And that multiculturalism is like a religion to me. That's why I ended up leaving Antioch and ultimately settling in Oakland because it was the closest thing to that kind of nirvana that I could have found um, where everyone is there. And even to this day, if everyone's not there at a, you know, at a party or at, at a work thing, I think someone's missing. We got to have them here. And I, um, so I'm that person. But the reason I'm that person is, is a lot shaped by my early experiences in my family. My mom's first husband was white in um, Oregon. Uh, my two older brothers uh, are blonde and blue, blue-eyed and grew, grew up together. My older brother, by a year and a half, is, uh, was born on an um, Indian reservation in Oregon. 
my uh, sister next in line was uh, also adopted. Wow, big family. So I have, there's six of us. Yeah. Um, and we always had, race was always a subtext of, of uh, you know, just family interactions. We want to say, th- those of us who are, you know, I, was, I remember um, hearing Obama's story about I have a dad from Kenya and a mom from Kansas, mm-hmm. and it sounds all hopeful. But the truth is that negotiating the system of racism and the reality of lived experience is just, it's just not that, it's not that smooth. Yeah. Um, and my, certainly not in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, and even not now. Well, and that idea that, you know, we were going to be in a post-racial society after Obama was elected, I mean... It's a joke. I mean, my brothers are Trump supporters. Really? really? Yeah. Wow. How's, how's Thanksgiving? Yeah, not too fun. No. No, wow. not too fun. Is that something that you all can talk about? Uh, it, it's it's fractured. I don't, I don't think I'm the only person with white... You know, anyone who's white, I go, you know, I feel very comfortable talking about being white in a white family because I am, you know, half my family and the pain of that. And I think I'm not the only one um, that has looked at the politics and the vitriol and the language and the denigration and the racism and the rise of white supremacy, all of that. What's the treating people, uh, the migrants on the border and jailing kids, all that stuff and saying, how could we be family? How, how, How could you support somebody? who believes in that horrible vision. Must and, be difficult for your parents, too. Yes. Your mom It's, it's hard for every. Yes, my mom especially. Because, because we all... She was someone, as well as my dad, who showed me that you can have a heart for people across race and really connect with a larger communion and identity that wasn't um, con- conscripted, like cons- constrained by uh, what society is telling you, you can believe. And, you know, to be white in this country is to uh, have a, a terrible burden of a system of racism that you walk into and even not aware of. And so it's those uh, racial justice-minded white people who believe in a society. And I, I think we saw, I was born in 1969 into like, a lot of people were imagining a new kind of multiracial society. Right. Um, and so we have so much unfinished unfinished business, you know, yeah. about yeah. that. Well, how do you think about this as we approach this next presidential election? Because I think that there's a lot made on both sides of the aisle about identity politics and whether that's a good or a bad thing. Clearly, you're someone who's really embraced the idea that, you know, people who are diverse should be running, but also that they should embrace that diversity um, and and speak about it. And I think that, you know, as evidenced by the debate we talked about at the top of this with um, Representative Omar, there's a lot of consternation within the Democratic Party about, like, who's electable and what a nomination, you know, what a nominee should look like. I mean, how are you approaching this and how are you talking to the candidates that you support about it? I just want to go back to 2017. Uh, I was a uh, very ardent and had been an ardent supporter of Stacey Abrams running for governor of Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I went down to Albany, Georgia, which is in the southern part of the state. Um, I was the only person from out of state to watch her declare her candidacy and recognized how uh, historic that was. But she was coming in to a situation where she'd already, she, she was already House minority leader and respected amongst the party and was a legislator, um, super brilliant and awesome woman. But the Democratic Party in uh, in Georgia 
tried to cut her off at the knees by running, uh, primarying her. And um, women of color are the are the most likely to face primaries, hmm. primary challenges. And in a practical basis, that is a huge impediment for women of color actually winning and actually taking taking office. And yet, and of course, it's a lo- there's a long way to go, but Kamala Harris has emerged as a sort of a top-tier well, yeah. candidate. Yeah, but and look, we might have more than one. Well, we might have more, yeah. Well, but, like, but, but, but looking at Stacey Abrams, in 2017, none of the so-called experts believed a black woman could mm-hmm. be elected um, statewide. Fast forward to her giving the official response to the State of the Union. She's now being recruited to run for Senate. So, so much has happened culturally in terms of our idea of what's possible. I don't believe uh, there could be a Kamala Harris without a Stacey Abrams, who's who's demonstrating in the Deep South that it's possible to expand the electorate and actually win that win that state. It's a red state. We have right? like one minute left. But I want to ask you, within that context, do, do you then sort of think that the Democratic Party needs to look in 2020 not towards getting back those Trump-Obama, elusive Trump-Obama voters, but to expanding the electorate the way Abrams did in Georgia? Yeah, w- women of color as voters and as organizers and as candidates expanded the electorate, and delivered victories for the Democrats in in the midterms. They will do so in 2020, but they have to embrace an agenda of uh, and candidates who are about uh, racial, economic, and social justice and recognize how critical and central the women of color vote is. Uh, That's what She the People is doing, is making that voting bloc powerful and real to the Democrats. Will you endorse a candidate? Maybe later. Yeah, it's kind of early right now. <laughs> we don't even know who the field Let's, is, right? You know, <laughs> and I was tell every single one of those candidates, you will not be our nominee without the enthusiastic support of women of color. So let's just talk about the issues first and see. It's a big field. We've never experienced this before. Yeah, it's really going to be interesting. Uh, we have about 10 seconds left, but you're going to Austin yeah. uh, to do the South by Southwest That's right. with Representative Omar. That's right. You're going to get some good it's barbecue mothers down there. Yeah, right, yeah. I, this is my first time at that big conference uh, with uh, Linda Sarsour and um, Representative Omar about being a mom in the oh, movement. Interesting. That's kind of cool. awesome. I'm oh, I didn't even talk about you being a mom. Yeah, he's 21. He's, well, 21. he's 21. He's 21. <laughs> Thank you for coming in, Amy. Amy. Thanks so much. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer tonight is Jeremy Siegel, and our engineer is Seal Muller. Vinny Tong is our managing editor. Ethan Lindsay is our executive editor. Holly Kernan is our chief content officer. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Maurice Lagos. You can find me at M Lagos. That's a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. See you next time. See you then. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more 
all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.